Uh, you will probably realise we've been following John's Gospel for some time now. And I'm just going to pick up on some of the stuff I said last time I spoke a couple of weeks ago, just to kind of set what's happening tonight in its context. So you remember I mentioned that the structure of John kind of sits around the seven signs and kind of the different teaching kind of flows out of the nature of the miracles. So he feeds 5,000. He talks about being the bread of life. But there are not just um, seven signs that give structure to John's gospel. Um, there are also seven distinct claims of Jesus that we call the I am sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. Uh, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Um, I am the way, the truth and the life, which was the last one we had when I was speaking a couple of weeks ago. And then tonight, it is I am the true vine. Um, and that's the last of the I am sayings that we find um, in John's gospel. Um, and kind of at first sight, um, that can seem to be a little bit obscure um, compared to the others. You know, I am the light of the world. That is a very big claim, isn't it? It's a huge claim. Um, even to say, I am the gate, we, uh, he goes on to talk about, actually, we have to enter in through him to get eternal life. It's a claim that eternal life is only found in him. Or I am the resurrection and the life, that our hope of kind of eternity rests on him. I am the way, the truth and the life. The only way to know God is from these are huge, huge claims. So I am the true vine can feel a little bit obscure. But actually, it is just as significant. So let me kind of set the scene for kind of where, how, he, how, how he finds his way to talking about the vine. And again, as I explained last time, uh, it's, John's gospel is unique um, in giving as much kind of space as it does to the last night of Jesus's life. None of the other Gospels go into so much detail of what happened on that last night. Um, kind of there's four or five chapters that are just recording the conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. So he's warned them of his death and he's, he's explained that it's, he's going to be taken from them, um, but he'll come back. That it's good for him to be taken from them and they can't get their heads around that. He's promised them another counsellor that the Holy Spirit will be given to them. Um, he's also explored um, the relationship that's there between him and his heavenly father and also the relationship that he wants them to be able to have with himself. Um, and so kind of it's it's really, really deep stuff. Kind of, it, you know, it's very profound. And it's a conversation that takes place um, on the Mount of Olives. So on the hillside, looking out over Jerusalem and in between the Mount of Olives you've got the Kidron Valley later in the evening he will descend from the Mount of Olives um, and will go into Gethsemane and that's where Judas will betray him and where he will be arrested so kind of his this conversation takes place with a vantage point across the to looking towards the city um, and um, what they would see the thing that would dominate that view um, the biggest thing and the most kind of dramatic thing is the temple. It would be bigger than any other building and it would have dominated the skyline of Jerusalem. You would not be able to miss it from here. 
I had to do a bit of kind of fact checking. You know how you hear preachers and you assume that what they're saying must be true, so then you preach it to somebody else. None of us would ever do that, would we, of course. And then you have this horrible thing that goes through your mind. I hope that really is true, you know? And it was one of those moments when I was thinking, oh, I'll talk about this, and I thought, well, actually, is Mike Breen right? Is that true? Well, it's Mike Breen, so it must be right, no. Um, so um, I did fact-check it. Um, the, um, the front of the... Um, of the temple would have had some big kind of colonnade type pillars and set amongst those colonnades um, would have been a huge golden vine and on the golden vine there would have been 12 bunches of grapes one representing each of the tribes of Israel and I did fact check it I didn't rely on Mike Breen Josephus who was a Jewish um, kind of army commander who was part of the rebellion against the Romans but switched sides um, which hence the fact that he kind of lived to write kind of writes about this in his history of the Jews and he records the vine um, and the grapes kind of literally at the front of the temple so as they look across the valley they can see the temple um, and when Jesus says these words they can see on the temple kind of the vine um, which symbolizes the people of God in the Old Testament um, and the vine is one of the big Old Testament themes one of the pictures we find in the Old Testament it's a symbol of the nation of Israel itself so a Jewish man would have prayed in his prayers from Psalm 80 you brought a vine out of Egypt you drove out the nations and you planted it you cleared the ground for it, you took root and you filled the land. Um, and so he would, have, um, you know, he would have celebrated being part of this nation of Israel and what God had done for them using this imagery of the nation being a vine. It was a picture of God's people and, of, and, of, and it was symbolic of kind of what they were meant to be, a healthy nation that would grow into a vine that would be fruitful. That was God's intention for them. Um, but as with so much in the Old Testament, God's people fail to live up to their calling. So the prophets kind of, kind of, that they lament the fact that this vine has become diseased um, and has not, be, not become what God intended it to. So Isaiah says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He expected it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes, i.e. something that wasn't fit to eat. Jeremiah, I planted you as a choice vine from the purest stock. How then did you turn degenerate and become a wild vine? Or Ezekiel's chilling words which speak of judgment. Therefore, says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given for fire for fuel, so will I give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, the vine in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's people and it's a symbol of their relationship uh, with him. Um, and kind of now Jesus says that he's the one that is the true fulfillment of that. That If we want a relationship with God, we will have it through him, not through the nation of Israel. 
Um, and some of the stuff that he has to say is quite harsh. You know, I am the vine. No, actually, I am the true vine. You know, the Old Testament ch nation was, was the vine. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. This is, you know, when you look at me, you see what God wants for you. Um, and, um, and Jesus becomes the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, and he makes them available to us. It's no longer about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. He becomes our righteousness. Kind of what we need to depend on him is what Jesus is saying in this passage. Um, and it seems to me in the passage, Jesus reveals the secret of fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Um, and it begins with judgment. He cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. Kind of that is, um, that's kind of a picture of what's happening to the Old Testament and to the kind of the, the Jewish nation when it's with its rejection of Jesus, its lack of fruitfulness. It's going to face judgment, and that judgment culminates in the vine and the temple that's opposite being torn apart. Kind of it literally is burnt up. Um, but then he also talks about what does bear fruit, needing pruning, which kind of makes most of us shudder a little. I know we've got at least one gardener here. Any other gardeners besides um, Jane? Um, kind of, um, you know, why on earth do you need, Jane, help me. Why do you need to prune things? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like pruning things, though? I, 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 sometimes it can be quite a satisfying thing to do if you kind of do it right. But sometimes I really recoil against doing it. You know, when you get a plant that is really feels like it's got a beautiful shape to it and it's flowered, kind of, you know, and you, and you think, oh, I don't want to mess with it, you know. I used to have an ongoing argument with my mother. Um, we would sit in the back garden in the summer and by our patio, there's a kind of a row of lavender. And it would kind of flower, and it would smell lovely, and it would look lovely. You know my lavender, because you've used it. Uh, my, and by about August, my mother would be saying, you need to cut the lavender. You need to cut the lavender. And I've been thinking, but no, it still smells nice. The bees are still on it. I want to keep it there a bit longer, and I don't want to cut it. And I would keep putting off cutting it until the very last moment. And then eventually I would cut it, because I knew that it had to be done. But I didn't want to lose the flowers, because they look so nice. But if I didn't cut it, then all the new growth would grow out of the of the of the, of this year's growth, and it would get really straggly. The plant would get weak, um, and so kind of rather than being kind of fruitful next year, it would actually get weaker. So it kind of goes against the grain when something is fruitful to cut it back. Um, but actually, that's a picture of what God wants for us. He wants us to be fruitful. And that's why we encounter pruning and things that aren't always comfortable in our lives is to make us more fruitful. Um, kind of there is judgment on Israel because it's dead. But those he loves, those are fruitful. He prunes. Um, and then he goes on to say, remain in me. Um, so kind of, you know. This is the secret of fruitfulness in the kingdom, remaining in Jesus. The heart of fruitfulness flows out of relationship with Jesus um, and remaining in Jesus. 
learning to dwell in him and him in us. And it is the most profound reminder of our utter dependence on Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man or woman remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Kind of fruitfulness comes out of remaining in Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's this kind of, you know, just this powerful reminder that we are dependent completely on Jesus. So kind of if the secret of fruitfulness in the kingdom is remaining in Jesus, what is the secret then of, rem- of, of remaining in Jesus' love? Well, it says here it's being obedient to Jesus' commands. You know, if you love someone, you want to please them. You know, we can't claim to be in Jesus and to love Jesus and then live um, as if we were not. And so what commands does he want us to obey? And it's not a complicated thing. It's not necessarily an easy thing. It's a challenging thing. But it's not a complicated thing. He says, love one another. Love one another. It's as simple as that. But it's as deep as that. So if the secret of life in the kingdom is to remain in Jesus, then the currency of the kingdom is love. Um, kind of when we, um, when we, when we read in this, these, these chapters about the relationship between um, Jesus and his, heavenly, and his Father, we will see that at the heart of that relationship between Jesus and his Father um, is love. He says here, as the Father has loved me, that's what characterises the relationship he has with the Father, so I have loved you. Um, And um, kind of, if it happens next week, I think it should do, Tom should be speaking, and he's speaking on Jesus' high priestly prayer um, in in John 17. And and in that prayer, part of Jesus' prayer is... um, that kind of that we would have the same relationship with him that he has with his father. He said, you know, just as you and, the, you and I, father, are one, so I want them to be one with me. Um, so it's like this whole kind of faith thing, this faith journey we're on, is an invitation into a relationship with God through Jesus. An invitation actually to share the relationship that Jesus has with his father. He wants us to participate in that and to share it. And love is at the heart of that. So Jesus says, my command to you is love one another. And then he goes on to paint a picture of what that love looks like. Greater love have no man than he lays down his life from his brother. Um, you know, he's anticipating what's going to happen the next day. That's his love for us in being willing to go through that night and into all that the next day brings with that dawn um, to lay down his life for us. Greater love have no man. So kind of how do we illustrate um, 
what it means to remain in Jesus. If we're kind of saying that um, kind of the secret of us, of having the strength to live the Christian life, of being fruitful in the way that God intends us to be, uh, is to kind of depend on Jesus. How do we do that? You know, we could use a physical kind of illustration. You could kind of talk about a light that needs to be plugged into the mains um, for it to actually work. And if it's not plugged in, obviously it won't light up. You know, it's dependent on its connection with the mains. But actually that doesn't give us, that's not a good enough picture. Yes, we need, we are dependent on Jesus for the strength we need to live the Christian life. But this isn't just about um, kind of a physical connection um, or a superficial connection. Kind of remaining in Jesus is a much deeper thing than something that's just you know being plugged into the mains and getting getting a power source that makes a difference in our lives it's about a relationship that we're meant to enter into and, and it kind of you could almost take a picture from any healthy relationship where someone kind of loves someone and they are secure in that person's company and kind of that relationship enables them to be more than what they would have been otherwise and kind of the most natural thing of themselves is to, you know, is to spend time with that person. And that's the sort of idea that we have here, of what it means to remain in Jesus. It's a conscious choice about, you know, about depending on him. And um, it speaks of a deep abiding relationship and indwelling of the presence of God in our lives and us in him. Well, that's what I wrote on Saturday afternoon. Um, now for your compare and contrast. I would be happy with 500 words from each of you, um, that, if that's okay. If you could kind of bring them in next week, that'd be amazing. I'll be really pleased to you know, mark them. And So this is, this is Rich Nathan. Um, so he says, the logic of John 15 is wonderful to consider. Number one, we can have joy fruit and hear God's voice and then he asked the question how so number two stay connected to Jesus remain in him and then he says how again live in his love again he asked the question how obey his commands and he asked the question Oh, good, you were listening. That's reassuring. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> um, it says, lay down, lay down your life for others. Um, and then he said, that final step starts an incredible chain. And isn't that how it kind of works? Jesus lays down his life for us. And we are touched and changed by his life. And we abide in him and we follow in his example um, and we love others and we lay down our lives for them. Um, and then they are touched by his love and then it kind of goes on and on and on. So you can compare and trust 500 words. Um, best handwriting, please. because I'm not very good at reading people's handwriting. That'd be great. <laughs>